Uh, good to be back with you all. Hope you all enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Hope you uh, enjoyed yesterday's football game in the upstate uh, just as much as I did. Do we have any Clemson fans? Can we ask them to raise their hands so we can shame them publicly? <laughs> just one. All right. <laughs> well, it's good to be here. It's good to be back um, after a restful holiday. And uh, I'm especially excited because, as we noted, I've got um, two special guests. Um, Y'all can give a warm welcome to Scott and Jenny Wonderlich. <laughs> They're probably not happy that I'm doing this. Um, but uh, if you've ever wondered who was responsible for raising such an insufferable egotist, these are the ones to blame. Um, <laughs> no, on a very serious note, um, a lot of you guys have known me for a few years, and uh, you may remember that um, my dad went through a lot of serious health issues some years back, um, ultimately resulting in surgery to remove his colon and ultimately a bone marrow transplant for some blood cancer that he had. Um, and uh, a lot of you spent some long hours with me in prayer for that. Um, those were difficult days for our family. They went on for several long years, uh, but we have just had Thanksgiving. And uh, in the spirit of the week, uh, I want to tell you that God is faithful. And when we pray to him in earnest, he hears us. Um, and so I'm thankful for that. Um, thank you all who have prayed with us. Um, we are grateful to you. We are most of all grateful to God um, for his mercy uh, in, in healing them. And, uh, you know, we didn't know if we would see a day like this, but but to be able to gather with family, um, as we've, many of us have done this past week, is a great blessing and you shouldn't take it for granted. Um, Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. And so uh, the psalm says the people of God, who, who God has redeemed, are supposed to give thanks and they're supposed to tell their story. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And uh, we want to say so. We have been um, redeemed by his hand. We want to give thanks for that. Um, we want to tell anybody who's willing to listen that he's our redeemer and he's good. And uh, he, he answered our prayers for a terrible sickness. Um, but uh, most of all, more important than even that, um, we're grateful because he's redeemed us from our sinfulness. He has uh, redeemed us from our personal brokenness and he has shown us immeasurable grace in the person of his son, uh, Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about some more this morning in our parable. But I just wanted to mention that and, uh, and say that you ought to be thankful this week, and we're especially thankful this week. <clears throat> so with all of that, as a, as a brief intro, um, we're going to talk about a parable this morning that just so happens to be about the to topic of redemption. Um, we're continuing on in our series. We're getting fairly close to the end of it. We've been studying through Jesus' parables all fall semester, um, and I hope it's been edifying and worthwhile for, for each of you. We've looked at all kinds of parables, some of them very short, some of them uh, rather long, some of them uh, encouraging, some of them pretty harsh and actually scary at times. Um, but all of them are from the master teacher. All of them are for our spiritual education and for our growth. And uh, I certainly wouldn't discount any of Jesus' par parables or teachings as somehow being less important. They're all from him. Um, but you may like to know that we've essentially saved his most famous and loved parables for the end here. So uh, these are the greatest hits, if you will. Um, and uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. 
Luke chapter 15 has three parables in it. Uh, We looked at the first two of them together in one week, all the way back at the beginning of this series. And uh, today we're going to look at the third and final one. These are, in my opinion, related parables. I think it's not coincidental that they're given in direct succession um, from each other. Um, So the first two are the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the last one, which we're going to look at in more detail today, is the parable of the lost son. You may know it better as the parable of the two sons or probably as the parable of the prodigal son. It is uh, certainly one of Jesus' most famous teachings, one of his most famous parables. Um, For a little background and context, as a reminder, um, we talked about this uh, when we looked at the lost sheep and the lost coin. But for context here, Jesus is teaching to a fairly large crowd uh, in these parables. Um, And there are two very distinct groups of people in that crowd. Um, The first group are a group of people that the text calls tax collectors and sinners. These were among the most hated and detestable people of Jewish society. The tax collectors were, of course, thieves. They were disloyal to the Jewish leadership. Um, They chose instead to collect collect taxes for the Roman government, uh, which was occupying the Jewish state at that time. And uh, they were stealing from the Jewish people, of course. They would always skim a little off the top or maybe a lot off the top. um, And the Roman government was totally fine with that. They would surround themselves with thugs who would uh, enforce those dishonest tax collecting operations. And uh, they were generally just not nice people. They got rich through corruption. Um, The other term, tax collectors and sinners, sinners is, of course, very broad. Um, but it, we can conclude from the way it's used there that it included all, all kinds of undesirable people, um, probably prostitutes, criminals, um, all kinds of low-class, dirty, deplorable types, uh, not at all a glamorous bunch. Um, but this group of people, despite uh, their, their sinful proclivities, are gathering around to listen to Jesus as he teaches here. That is the first group. The second group was the Pharisees and the scribes, and we've given extensive introduction to them in the past. Uh, I won't go into too much detail again today, but suffice to say, they were the religious leaders, of course. They were a highly self-impressed group. Um, They would certainly never think to associate themselves with the disgusting uh, tax collectors and sinners from the first group. And as the Pharisees and the scribes watched Jesus teach, and they watched the sinners all gathering around to listen, they started murmuring and complaining. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 15, it says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They say, who would do a thing like that? We're, we're supposed to be the clean religious elite. We don't associate with those types. And so it's in direct response to that murmuring that Jesus offers these three parables in direct succession. Um, and all of them share a unifying theme. It's the redemption of the lost and the joy of the Father in that redemption. So the first talks about lost sheep. It says the shepherd takes tremendous joy in going out to find this uh, lost sheep that that, um, has run away. And he tells the Pharisees then that heaven rejoices more over one repentant sinner than over 99 uh, quote-unquote righteous people like them who don't see their need for repentance. And uh, that was uh, certainly not a well-received message for the Pharisees. Uh, Then he tells another parable, a very short one, about the lost coin, sharing exactly the same theme, that um, all of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. And uh, that's just like a woman rejoicing when she 
loses a coin, one of her 10 coins, basically 10% of her life savings, and then she finds it again and, and wants to celebrate with her friends. Heaven rejoices in that way when a sinner repents. The last parable that we're going to talk about now is the longest of the three by far. It goes into great detail, painting a, a narrative about sin, consequences, about repentance, forgiveness, and the joy of the Father in restoring a lost sinner. Um, so let's go ahead and read it. We're going to start in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, and we will stop at verse 24. We'll talk about the last few verses a little later on if I don't totally run out of time. <clears throat> Luke 15:11. he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The, the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We'll stop reading there for now. So, um, familiar passage, I hope, to most of you. Maybe not the first time you've read this. Um, as the story goes, there's, of course, this man with two sons. We can tell, um, or, or at least infer from the story, that this is a fairly wealthy father. He has a significant estate. He owns lands and animals, and he has servants and hired workers. So this was not a, a lower-class man by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, the story begins with the younger of the father's two sons coming to him, and making an outrageous, disgraceful, rude, and utterly shameful request of him. He tells his father, I want my share of the inheritance, and I want it now. Um, to state the obvious, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that inheritances get distributed when the owner of the estate dies, not before that. Um, when the father is still alive, his estate is his estate, and the son has no claim to it whatsoever. That is doubly true in this case because this is the younger of the two brothers asking for his share. Um, this would be like hopping in line. In Jewish culture, the firstborn was entitled to the first of everything. He probably got um, the larger share of the inheritance to begin with. Maybe he got two-thirds and the younger son would get one-third. Um, but certainly he had the first claim to everything. Uh, there was no... Uh, means in which this younger son would be able to hop in line and claim something before the older would get it. Um, so this was an extremely presumptive request. He was flagrantly uh, violating the expected norms of his society at the time. Um, more than that, 
cultural norms aside, this request was also a clear message to the father um, that he wanted no relationship with him whatsoever, right? The implication of this request is the best thing that you can do for me, dad, is hurry up and die already so I can have your money and possessions. That's what he was saying by asking this. The son was telling his father his life and existence was nothing more than an inconvenience to him. And by the way, I would say this is precisely how the rebellious heart of the average sinner treats God, right? Nothing more than a total fuddy-duddy inconvenience. An annoyingly strict authoritarian whose rules are just holding us back from what we suppose is the good life, right? And, and we just want them out of the way so that we can go do what we want to do. The rebellious sinful heart totally rejects its maker, totally rejects the one who has provided all that it has. It just wants to be in control. Of course, the father in this story is God, if you haven't figured that out yet. <clears throat> Most of us would receive an inheritance with a little tinge of sadness, right? It's a kind of a bittersweet financial bonus. The money's great to have, but it's caused by the loss of a loved one, and you can't value money over your own family. Even if you're looking forward to what you might be able to do with a financial bonus, you cannot be so callous and greedy that you effectively tell your loved ones to hurry up and die. That's just way outside the basic bounds of human decency. You don't do that, and the prodigal son does not have decency in this story. So going back to the text, we find that the audacious request that he made is met with, I would say, an equally surprising and unusual response. I don't know if we always talk about that enough in this story, um, but it's kind of ridiculous that the father actually agrees to this, right? Who gives away their estate while they're still living as an inheritance? It's not how this works. What was he thinking? I, the son was pretty audacious and shameful in making a request like that. But the, the father's agreeing to it, I would say, is probably equally shameful. It's kind of ridiculous. So, so you give all your, your money to this son just so that he can go spit on your memory and everything you've ever done for him? Rapidly waste it all on sinful, self-destructive indulgences? Is that like a loving thing to do? Is that wise? What kind of a father does that? I'd say the appropriate response the societally expected uh, honorable response, if you will, and the only response that would begin to salvage the father's dignity in this situation would be to teach this disrespectful kid a lesson. You tell him, go get lost, right? Kick rocks and flip-flops, take a long walk off a short pier. You tell him he better never approach you like that ever again if he ever wants to see one dime of that inheritance. Don't you dare come to me and ask such a disrespectful, ridiculous thing. You tell him he better learn to shut his mouth and be more respectful. You tell him all that and then you tell him some more, but under no circumstances do you just go along with it and give him what he wants. That's just the wrong answer. So the question is, why does he do it? <clears throat> Maybe the best answer here is that um, this father represents God and uh, God knows what he's doing and it's not our question to are not our place to question the wisdom of how he acts. Um, but I would just make one comment here. I don't want to get into the weeds of uh, free will versus divine determinism, uh, Calvinism or whatnot. I married into a family that's uh, pretty reformed and Calvinist. Um, I know their arguments. I know their scripture that they point to. I certainly see where they get it from. I don't even entirely disagree with them. 
I also deeply know and respect a lot of people who, uh, who are not Calvinist, and they believe God gives us real agency. He gives us free will to make our own choices. And I'm not going to hash out all that today by any means. But what is abundantly clear to me in this parable is that the father does indeed give his wayward son agency. He gives him the freedom to go make his own choices, even if they're bad choices. In fact, he downright enables it, right? He gives him the money. You know, he can't stop his, his adult son from doing everything that son wants to do, but he certainly could have avoided giving him a third of the estate or more. <clears throat> Father could have nipped it in the bud. He could have taken some action to prevent all of this open rebellion. He could have just refused to give his son the estate uh, to go squander on parties and prostitutes, but he didn't. He just allowed it. Some of you like me, or some of you here are like me, um, in that you grew up in a Christian home, you grew up in a Christian environment, you went to church with your family, you were instructed from the very beginning on how to act in a way that honors the Lord, and you've always known from, from day one all the right Sunday school answers. You know what right and wrong are. But regardless of your upbringing, whether that's your story or even if it's not, you do have the agency, the choice, if you will, of how you want to live. That is something that God grants you, I believe. He gives you the liberty to act honorably in his own wisdom. He also typically gives you the liberty to act disgracefully and to go make a giant reprehensible wreck of your own life. If you want to do it, you can do it. Plenty have done it before you. That is within your power. And you yourself have to make the choice of how do you want to live. You can choose to stay at home with your very good father and serve him in his house or you can choose to take all of the blessings that he's lavished on you and you can leave and selfishly serve your own vanities. This is the single greatest choice of your life. I have no intention of minimizing the sovereignty of God or of ignoring the essential role the Holy Spirit plays in producing repentance. Doubtless, it is true that God has numbered your days. It is certainly true that he has written them all down uh, before you ever lived them. He knows you better than you know yourself, and His Spirit can work in you to harden your heart or to soften it and to renew it. No act of rebellion you ever commit could be a surprise to God. He knew it all before you ever did it. Um, and there's absolutely nothing you can do that will subvert His sovereignty and His will. But in all of that, you do still get to choose who you're going to serve. Just like the Israelites got to choose uh, in Joshua's day when he told them, Choose you this day who you will serve, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. The prodigal son chose the other option. Sometimes, as we watch people's lives unfold, um, and as I do it, I, I honestly question why God allows them to do the things that they do. The people who ought to know better, right? Why didn't he intervene sometimes? Why didn't he prevent them from stooping to the disgraceful depths that they stooped to? Why does he allow them to, to, to heap such disgrace on, on the name of Christianity, on his name, with impunity, to just keep on doing it? Well, maybe it's not my place to ask that question. God knows what he's doing. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe just for the purposes of our story, the Father had to do this so that we could get to the rest of the story here. This is, this is Jesus' parable. We'll let him make his own choices. Isaiah 55 tells us, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are higher than the earth. And so we'll let him make his own decisions. And the father gives away the inheritance here to his prodigal son. 
And as the story goes, we know the rest. This son very quickly packs up all of his newly inherited possessions. He liquidates them rapidly. Uh, it says in not very many days later, he, he takes off for a foreign country. That probably implies that he sold them at a loss because um, if you want to take a lot of possessions and turn them into money very quickly, you have to take it at a, a little, little bit of a loss. And uh, so that's wasteful in and of itself. And then he travels to a far off country, um, presumably with no plans to ever return or be a part of his family ever again. He's gone for good at this point. He's taken the money, he's gone far, as far away as he can get, and he's gonna go drink and he's gonna party and buy prostitutes. And it's a tragic and a sad story, but it's not done getting tragic yet because it's gonna get more tragic. <clears throat> Prodigal is um, not a word we use often in our English lexicon today. Um, you may think, uh, because the only reason, time we ever use the word prodigal is in relation to this parable, you may think prodigal means rebellious or wayward or something like that. But the English word literally means wasteful. Um, the prodigal son is the wasteful son. He's the son that squandered his father's inheritance. And he's named for that because that's exactly what he does. Um, mind you, this, was, this uh, son's father was a rich man. This inheritance he got was probably a pretty good sum of money. Um, I'm sure if it were well managed, he probably could have lived on it for a lifetime. He'd have never been poor. He could have invested it. He could have grown it. Um, he, could have, uh, he could have lived a comfortable life and he would have never been destitute even in hard times. But that's not what he does. He blows through the entire sum of money and uh, all of his fake friends that are happily enjoying that money with him while he's squandering it uh, leave him the very minute that it runs out and uh, the son is now destitute. Compounding the situation there, the parable says that shortly after this son ran out of money, a severe famine struck the country that he had moved to. Um, I would say we 21st century Americans really don't have the life experience to give the context to an idea of a severe famine. Um, frankly, it's just a lot worse than anything we've ever actually dealt with as a, as a modern society. We take for granted that there's 27 grocery stores within a 15 minute drive and you can uh, come to them anytime you like and you can buy any meat, any produce, any grocery that you like. You can get international foods. You can buy fruit when it's in season. You can buy fruit when it's not in season. You know how unthinkable that was for every society before ours? Like, <laughs> this is an unbelievably opulent blessing that we just take totally for granted. It's all in stock 24 seven, 365. Um, and uh, we think it's bad when uh, COVID hits or there's a storm and there's a run on toilet paper and we have to go to three different stores before we can find any, right? We don't know what real problems were. A severe famine in that day, that was a real problem. That, um, it was harrowing. It could take the richest city in the land and bring it directly to its knees in short order. Um, the supplies would run out. The prices would, of course, skyrocket because the demand for food doesn't go down when you've still got mouths to feed. And uh, the national economy, economy would crumple. The, the working class and the poor would be lucky to have enough food to feed their families with. Some of them would not have enough food to feed their families with. Some of them might just starve. There's a couple Bible stories about that um, back from Elijah's day. <clears throat> In the midst of all of that happening at the societal and national level, um, all of this chaotic crisis, this prodigal son has already wasted all of his money. And his poor decision making 
and his, his reduced state in life is now horribly compounded by uh, just a terrible environment that frankly he wasn't even responsible for creating. This famine was not in his control. And so a once rich Jew, now forced to live uh, penniless, um, becomes an, an unskilled uh, kind of a low-class laborer working in a foreign nation, and he's sent out to feed the pigs in the field for one of the locals. And that is just about as low as you can go for a Jew, right? Pigs are dirty, they're filthy, they're not fun to be around, they make a horrible mess of everything, your clothes are filthy, you're out there in the fields with them all day, and they're an unclean animal. Um, and, and Jews did not really mess with pigs that much. And so he's out there, um, basically starving to death in the fields, feeding pigs, and as he's out there, he's like so hungry that he's, uh, he's longing to, fill, to eat his fill with uh, pig pods, right? What, the, what they give to the animals to feed. Uh, this is rock bottom. This is as low as you can basically go for someone in his circumstance. And it's due in part to his own horrible behavior. It is the just consequence of his actions. Um, and it's also due in part to what we might consider divine judgment in his life, right? The famine was not his creating, it was not his doing, but God was working through this famine to bring uh, this prodigal son lower than he had ever been before. There was no room for pride left in his life. He had filthy clothes, he had no friends, he had no money, he had no food. He functionally had no family because he had entirely rejected the one uh, that God had given him at birth. And he also couldn't blame his calamity on anybody but himself because it was pretty clear at this point he did this, right? He put himself in, in this position. He wanted to rest control and take the money and the inheritance and go off and live the way he saw fit. And now he was getting what came of his own choices. He got what he deserved. And it is from that position that verse 17 uses a brand new phrase about the prodigal son. It says that he came to his senses. <clears throat> Luke 15, 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. This is the first rational thought that he has had so far in the parable. Finally, when he's gone so low, when all of the pride and the vanity are gone, all of the pleasures of the sinful lifestyle that he chose have given way to the misery and the brokenness that they inevitably produce. Right there at rock bottom, this son begins to wake up and think back about the old days. He comes to his senses and he says, I never used to worry about finding food. I certainly never wanted to eat pig feed in the past. And now I'm out here in a foreigner's field feeding pigs. What am I doing here? I would say there's something else buried in this uh, realization that he has when he comes to his senses. Um, something that he didn't properly appreciate formally. He says, you notice what he says, when he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I am dying of hunger? Hired workers were not high class people in the day. Um, they were daily laborers, they were typically unskilled. They just show up in the morning at the marketplace and say, I'm available, who can I go work for? Um, they were not typically well paid, they scraped by, they lived day to day, paycheck to paycheck. The Old Testament actually contains laws um, that say you have to pay your hired workers at the end of every day that they work. You can't wait till later in the, the month to pay them or something like that. 
And that was not uh, a law to micromanage the financial systems of rich men. That was a law of mercy for the poor. Um, these hired workers, they needed that money. If they didn't get paid at the end of the day, their family might not be eaten that night. They didn't have deep life savings. They just lived day to day. They were not uh, opulently rich people. But this son recalls, he says, my father's workers, they always had more than enough. He says, he begins to appreciate, I would say in a new way, that his father was actually a very generous and kind man, that he paid his workers well, that, that he was good to them. And, and he begins to, for the first time maybe ever, trust in his father's fundamental goodness. This is the same father he had already spit on and left for dead. And, uh, and now the, the grief has to be setting in um, as he recognizes that this, this man that I rejected who gave me everything I ever had, he didn't deserve that from me. He was a good man um, and, and I should have been loyal to him. And so the questions probably start to flood his mind. What, I, what was I doing with all of this? Why didn't I appreciate this before? How could I have been so blind and so foolish? And as the grief sets in, I'd say it's a godly grief. It's the regret that you feel when you finally let go of your foolish pride and you take responsibility for the mess you've made of your own life. In Christian circles, we have a word for it. It's called repentance. Uh, it's a change of heart. It's a 180 degree turn. It's a recognition that I am personally responsible for making a wreck of my own life. Um, and, and if I keep control of it like I've been so desperately grasping for, it's only going to get worse. It's a recognition um, that I desperately need forgiveness uh, from God and from all the people that I've wronged. And it's, it's a high resolution that I don't want to live this way anymore. It says, I've been doing this for long enough now. Shame on me for it, but I'm not going to do it anymore. From this day forward, it's going to be different. Um, my past mistakes are what they are. I can't go fix them again, but I can control it from now on, and I'm not doing it anymore. This repentance is the absolute foundation of the gospel that Jesus preached. Uh, that is what John the Baptist said. He said, uh, repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what you're to do. Um, it is uh, the act of denouncing yourself, denouncing your sin, your foolishness, your pride, and leaving it all behind for a new life. It is the single uh, first characteristic of every true disciple of Jesus. You are not a follower of Jesus if you have not produced repentance in your own life uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so now the prodigal son coming to his senses, seeing the situation clearly, he begins to form a plan. And his plan is to go back home and he starts rehearsing his speech that he's gonna give when he gets there. He says, verse 18, I'll get up, I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. His message has two parts. Contains a confession. He properly accepts the personal responsibility of, of what has happened in his life. And then he makes a request. Um, and it's a penitent request. He says, um, I've sinned. I've sinned both against, um, against you, Dad, and I've sinned against heaven itself. And, and I'm accountable for that, um, both to you and to God. Uh, but, you know, I don't deserve to be your son. Uh, just treat me like one of your hired workers. I, I don't need another inheritance. 
I don't need uh, the, the finer things in life. I don't need to be treated with respect. I haven't even earned that. Just bring me back home and, and let me stop starving to death in some foreigner's fields feeding pigs. <clears throat> I would say he recognizes that the rules and relationships he had rejected at this point were not there to restrain him but to guide him into wisdom. Right? He recognizes that that environment was fundamentally a good one and he was foolish to leave it behind. And so he prepares his speech, um, he has his confession and his request, and he goes on his way, presumably a long journey um, from this far off land all the way back home, um, and he was rehearsing his speech on the way, and he doesn't really know how he's gonna be received. Um, uh, the father would be well in his rights to totally reject this and say, uh, you're dead to me, shame on you, you got a lot of nerve coming back here ever again after what you did. Um, and that's a real possibility, but he says, my father was a good man and he was a merciful man, and this is the best shot I've got at this point. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the, the chief focus of the entire story that Jesus has told here. It's found in the father's response to his repentant son. This is why Jesus is telling the story. This is... Uh, in a story full of unexpected behaviors, this is maybe the most unexpected of them all. Given the tremendous disrespect um, of, of this son's departure, I would say the father could have been justified in not really ever wanting to see his son again. He brought shame on the family. All of the town's people would have been aware of it. It was an embarrassment publicly. He'd have been justified if uh, when the son got there, he said, let him just sit outside and wait here for a few days in his own filthy stench while I decide how I want to handle this, right? He'd have been justified if he sent him away again, empty-handed. You already got your inheritance from me. What, what more do you think I owe you at this point? A lot of nerve you got coming back here. You're your own problem now, not mine. He would have been justified in all of that, but he does the polar opposite of all of it. It says the father sees him when he's a long way off. Maybe we can even infer that the father was looking for him. He was ready and waiting for him to come back. And when he sees him, uh, he doesn't wait for him to arrive. He sprints out in what was presumably a, a rather undignified manner for a rich man uh, and an elderly man of his day. And he, uh, you know, they wore long cloaks. He probably had to hike that up. He looked a little bit ridiculous sprinting out into the fields. And uh, here comes his son, filthy, smelly, dead broke, pig-feeding, disgraced son of his out in the fields. And, uh, and he sprints out to him and he gives him a big hug and a kiss and he is immediately filled with compassion for him. At this point, uh, the text says the son starts to give his prepared speech. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's exactly what he had prepared to say, but if you notice, it's only half of what he had prepared to say, right? He, he gives the confession, but he doesn't even get to the request yet. Um, he, he's going to request to be treated as a hired worker, 
and the father interrupts him and he calls the servants and he says, uh, he treats him like a prince actually, right? He says, he doesn't even tell the son, go clean yourself up. He says, servants, come clean him up, right? Put the best robe on him, put the ring on his finger, put the sandals on his feet, slaughter that fattened calf, we're having a party here. Um, and, you know, there's maybe some symbolic meaning in all of this. The, the rings in those days would have the family seal on them. You could uh, stamp a letter and it uh, basically gave you the tacit authority to act on behalf of the family. Um, you're, you're welcomed back in there um, and he gets him some new shoes and it's time to celebrate. Um, the father's forgiveness is immediate. It is complete. He will hear none of this talk of treating his son as an ordered, ordinary hired worker. He says, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Uh, praise the Lord, my son is back. He was dead, now he's alive again. <clears throat> the son, the father also, I would say, absorbs the shame. Um, you know, it was not just the father that, that uh, this son had uh, embarrassed himself in front of with his leaving. It was probably the entire town. People knew what he did. Everybody that he went back to there, all the servants, his brother, all the townspeople there, they would have said, oh, this guy's back again. A lot of nerve there. We know how he was living. We heard those stories. And, uh, and rather than letting him deal with all of that shame, the father gets right in front of it and he absorbs it for himself. He sprints out and he says, um, you know, this embarrassment, this, this family disgrace, I'm going to take it on myself. Um, but, but you townspeople, you better know this is still my son. He's still honored in this family um, and, and, and we're going to still treat him like he is my son, even if he doesn't deserve it. He absorbs the shame. This is um, the grace of our loving and, heaven, uh, uh, and forgiving Heavenly Father. Um, it is unjustified mercy. It is not for works that we have done. It is not what we deserve. It's astounding grace. It is given freely. It's given lavishly on broken sinners who didn't deserve it in the slightest. Um, I hope you're thankful for that this morning on Thanksgiving week. Uh, I hope you're thankful that you serve an incomparably good Heavenly Father. You ought to be. This is, without a doubt, among the most famous teachings Jesus ever gave. It's about grace. It's about redemption. It is about, um, <clears throat> it's about forgiveness and mercy and second chances. It's a story we like to tell in church because it shows that God can take a wretch, a miserable, broken, disgraced sinner, and restore them for his own glory, and that he's happy to do it. He's joyful in it. Um, there is one more son in this story as we're... Uh, nearly running out of time here, and I do want to mention that just very briefly. Um, this is the older son. He was, by all accounts, much more faithful and obedient than his brother. And uh, this older son gets to feeling a bit jaded when the younger son gets back and gets the royal treatment. Um, we'll start in verse 25 of Luke 15. He says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with, with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. 
Can I just comment? He's kind of got a point, you know. <laughs> He's not wrong. Verse 31. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Um, I think uh, in listening to a lot of people preach through this passage, a lot of people are too hard on the second son. Um, the, a lot of people will say, um, you know, actually this, this second son, he's the one that's, that's unsaved, and uh, the father's totally rejecting him, and it's the prodigal son who repents that's really in the father's good graces here. I've got to tell you, I don't see justification for that in the text. Um, the father is very gentle in approaching his second son. He says, um, you've been obedient to me. You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. That's not an unsaved person. That's not someone who's even far from God. Um, that is the father uh, taking um, some, some understandable but, but still fleshly and human emotions felt by the second son and, and saying, I hear you but you need to understand the need for grace, right? There's no room for self-righteousness in the church. That's the application point. We welcome everybody when they come in, uh, and especially when they come in with repentance. Um, there is nobody who has done things that they can't be redeemed from. The grace of God is unlimited at the foot of the cross. And, uh, and so we celebrate that. We, we take in people, no matter their history, no matter what they've done in life, no matter what they struggle with, and we encourage them to come back into the Father's house and to serve Him here um, and to live righteously. That's what we do as the church. And so the Father just gently pleads with Him. He says, you got to know this is a time for celebration. He was dead. He's alive now. Um, there's, there's nothing quite like that, um, and we've got to celebrate it. So we're about out of time now. Um, I'm not going to give too much further commentary on the story. I think it largely speaks for itself. Um, and so uh, we'll let you uh, discuss and debrief if there's a couple minutes left. I hope it's been a blessing to you to visit or, or maybe revisit or revisit for the hundredth time a very familiar parable. I hope that each of you have experienced the tremendous joy and the blessing of God's forgiveness when you repent and turn to Him. Um, if you don't know what repentance is all about, um, come talk to somebody. Uh, you need to find out. That is the core of what we're about here at First Baptist Church and in the kingdom of heaven and in the kingdom of God here on earth. Um, I, I hope that God will give us thankful and obedient hearts as we move forward as forgiven and restored children of the king. And uh, I'll, I'll leave you very, very last with uh, just the words of one of my favorite psalms. It's Psalm 103, um, and it speaks to the great love that we've been shown. I'll read 1 through 13 of Psalm 103. It says, My soul bless the Lord, and all that is within me bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as, the, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, 
so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I hope that's uh, your story today, and uh, let's just close in prayer and say thanks. Lord, we thank you so much um, for all of your blessings to us in this week of Thanksgiving. We thank you for this church, um, for the message of, of Scripture, which we exist to proclaim, um, and for all that it teaches us. Lord, we thank you um, that each of us, uh, to some extent, were prodigals. Um, we have gone off. We have wrested control of our lives from you, despite all the blessings you have given us. Um, but that, Lord, in your mercy and your grace, you've been faithful to bring us back home. You, you delight in forgiveness. You've removed our transgressions from us. And you don't treat us like we deserve, Lord. We're thankful for that this morning. Um, and we just uh, pray now for this uh, group of people. We pray that uh, your spirit would be among us and that you would guide us uh, to see ourselves as you see us, Lord. We pray for the meaning to follow, that your name would be glorified in it, and that your spirit would be on Wes as he brings the message. Um, we thank you again for all your many blessings to us, and we pray in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.